Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. You know, many of us are fine with paying our fair share of taxes as long as it's legal, ethical, and moral, but really nobody wants to pay more in taxes than they have to. And I personally believe that you should always be learning ways to legally, ethically, and morally save on your taxes because really we don't want to be overpaying. And one of the reasons we invest in real estate, especially income producing real estate, is because it is such a tax favored asset class. It allows us to reduce and potentially even eliminate, at least temporarily, if not forever, our tax impact. And it's been a while since I've had my next guest on. He's just a brilliant guy when it comes to taxes and taxation, especially in the area of real estate. So I just thought it'd be uh, good timing to bring him back on and talk about the subject. So my guest today is Chris. Is I Chris, you're going to have to correct me if I pronounce your last <laughs> name wrong. Is it uh, Pichuro? Uh, very clear, Pichuro. Pichuro. But I've been good. called Paisan. worse. <laughs> nice Italian name. <laughs> Well, exactly. uh, Chris is the executive officer and co-founder at Integrated Financial Group, and they are a nationally based financial firm that strives to provide sound financial services to individuals, small businesses, and mid-sized businesses. So, Chris, I'm sorry for butchering your last name, but welcome to the show. Well, it is a pleasure to be here. I'm not only a uh, excited to be a participant, but I also really like the podcast, and I it's been a while since I've been on, and I think reached out a few weeks ago because I literally on my on my Sunday run was listening to a couple of your Ask Marco episodes, and they're always really good. About ninety to ninety-five percent of our client base are real estate investors, so I actually always like listening to those because that's telling me what people are asking. So it's a really good tip for me, and it's an honor to be be on this podcast. Awesome. Well, hey, I didn't know you were using my episodes to <laughs> to, to help you out, but that's awesome. That's great. Thank you for that, by the way. So, Chris, hey, tell us a little bit about yourself and your firm, because it's been a couple of years, I think, since I had you on, and I think we have a lot of new listeners. So tell us about you and your company. Yes. So um, our firm name is Integrated CPA Group. And what we do is we legally and ethically reduce the amount of taxes our clients pay in a lifetime. And our clients are entrepreneurs, real estate investors, and highly taxed households. And we do that using a exclusively a membership-based subscription model. So it's a little different model than most, uh, but we really focus on tax planning and strategy because with every person's situation, you have a compliance piece, which would be your tax return preparation, uh, could be bookkeeping, payroll. So obviously we offer those services, but the strategy planning and open lines of communications that we kind of feel like... Uh, in almost all relationships, communication solves all problems. So we like to be planners. We like to be proactive instead of putting fires out all the time. Perfect. I love it. That's great. It's an interesting model because so many companies are moving to this SaaS model, you know, software as a subscription. And even though yours is really a personal service, it's not a service online. It's interesting how many companies are going to the subscription model. I think it's brilliant. Well, thank you. Thank you. We've been, we are extremely early adopter. In fact, I've done some presentations. I'm originally from Michigan for the Michigan Association of CPAs. And I had some angry participants when I was presenting to my peers how to implement value-based pricing and these type of models. But I think people are coming around and I think that it's mutually beneficial based on, you know, for, for all parties involved. Great. I love it. So today's topic is essentially why does our tax code love 
real estate investors, you know, a lot of people are fearful of the tax code because they think it's all about how do I put my you know, hand in your pocket deeper and pull more out and, and leave you with less. But the reality is, is if you understand the tax code, it's really telling you how you can make more and, and pay less if you just know what those rules are. So I've identified last night about 10 different ways you can save in paying taxes or even eliminate taxes when it comes to real estate investing. So this is not, you know, a very structured conversation. I want to have a conversation with you so people listening can understand, wow, these are interesting ways to save on taxes. And maybe I didn't know about half of these. So maybe I'll just start the conversation by talking about probably one of the most interesting, powerful, and sometimes confusing areas, and that is depreciation, because depreciation can shelter your income. And it's one of those things that you literally don't have to spend a single penny to get it. It's just given to you by the IRS. It's a non-cash expense. So take us through depreciation and why it's such a beautiful thing. Right. So, and, and it's a confusing, it's a very confusing concept for our real estate investor clients. You know, if you think about you, our clients, let's say they're a contractor and they buy a new F-350, they know that vehicle depreciates over time. So it's easy for them to understand that uh, the depreciation. So instead of thinking depreciation, think about what we call now makers, modified accelerated cost recovery system. So instead of depreciation, think, how am I recovering the cost of my investment over time? And the federal government provides us with guidelines for the amount of time each piece of capital acquisition, which could be a single family home, it could be an improvement, or it could be equipment, machinery, how long you should deduct that. And uh, it, it changes between commercial and residential. So why the tax code loves us is that you can have a property that appreciates in value, yet you get a deduction. And we were kind of talking about talking about that uh, before the show, the, the concept that we use between cash flow and tax flow. Obviously, our clients are many of them are looking for positive cash flow. And what I'm working on is getting them positive tax flow, meaning, you know, they're, they're not because once you pay a tax, that's gone for the most part. Now, obviously, with the CARES Act, there's some new language that you can carry a net operating loss back five years. But just think about the, ta the tax you pay is a black hole. But that being said, you know, the tax code uh, provides us with a lot of opportunities to change how we write off our acquisition of properties. So what we do in our firm is we first diagnose and then we prescribe. So the diagnosis, we have four basic diagnoses. We have green, or the red, green, purple, gold. And depending on your diagnosis, so if you're a red diagnosis, meaning, oh my gosh, I have a ton of recognized income this year, what can we do? A great diagnosis would be using bonus depreciation, 179 depreciation, potentially cost segregation studies. So from a 30,000 foot view and from a listener standpoint, understanding that when you buy something, a capital asset, until you file that tax return, that's when you formally declare your depreciation schedule or your cost recovery system and timeline. What are the other categories? Maybe it's a bit of a tangent, but red is like you're bleeding in taxes. Yeah, so uh, yeah, red, red is red is stop the bleeding. Right. Green is uh, green is income acceleration. Purple is tax neutral, and then gold is what we all want: tax free growth. If we can accomplish something using all of those, that's even better. So just thinking about how real estate loves you know the tax code loves real estate. 
right? If you're a red diagnosis, you could run a, do a cost segregation study mm -hmm. and actually pick up more deductions than, especially if you put down 20% and you're picking up 30% on a property immediate deduction, you could actually be cash flow positive there. You can have a deduction more than your, so your tax flow is better than your cash flow. You can then, in that case, you might have a large deduction and assuming you could take that deduction, you might have the ability to recognize other income tax-free, such as, let's say, if you wanted to convert a Roth IRA or you wanted to uh, sell a property. The nice thing about depreciation is if you hold a property and you pass away and your beneficiaries inherit it, they're going to get a step up in cost basis and all of that cost recovery or the depreciation we're talking about gets wiped clear and we get to reset the clock based on fair market value. So that's truly tax-free growth. Right. Yeah, that's the beautiful thing about real estate. And sadly, it's basically saying never sell your property, hold it until you die. <laughs> you know, exactly. it's, it's just you pass it on, at least today, on a tax-free basis because the gain on the capital gains is wiped away and your heirs that inherit the property essentially start at zero again. So that's a beautiful thing. Going back to depreciation, I mean, really what you're saying is that you can show positive cash flow and actually have real spendable dollars coming from your income portfolio, your property portfolio, but at the same mm -hmm. time on paper show a loss that you can use to minimize or even potentially eliminate the tax impact of your income mm -hmm. this year and virtually for the next 27 and a half years or more. Right. So let's take a, let's take a, a cash flow property. Uh, let's say the acquisition price was $150,000. I'm going to use round numbers. So if you're driving right now or running, try not to, you know, grab a pencil, I guess, when it's safe. But let's say the property is $150,000. Let's pretend you don't have a mortgage on it. What would be your positive cash flow typically? Uh, let's say it rents for, you know, thirteen to fourteen hundred dollars. Yeah, that's about right. And let's say I'm just making numbers up, but let's say your positive cash flow is eight hundred dollars, seven eight seven eight hundred dollars, yeah, a month. Well, in that case, that hundred and fifty thousand dollar property. First of all, if you do nothing, we're going to have to do a land allocation. But in general, you're going to get a $4,000 deduction just for buying that property without a mortgage. So your cash flow is $8,000 plus $8,000. Your tax flow is you're only paying tax on $4,000. And not only are you that's what you're paying tax on, you're also only paying tax at an, at an ordinary income rate. It's in, unless you have a really rare circumstance, it's not subject to self-employment tax. So it's considered a passive income. What you could do though, what we've seen is, is let's say you're in a situation where we want to, let's say that you are a high income earner. And if you had a passive activity loss, you might not be able to deduct it in the current year. What you could do is potentially do what's called the cost segregation study. I know we've talked about it on the podcast before. Let's assume we get, be very conservative, let's call it 20%. Let's get, say you get a $30,000 immediate deduction. Well, now what happens is for the next four to five years, you're gonna pay no tax on an $8,000 positive cash flow. Or here's another situation where we would say, if your green diagnosis would be maybe buying a cash flow property with no mortgage. If you have, let's say you are a W2 person with high income and you have a lot of passive activity losses, we're looking for what we call PIGs, passive income generators. So you might want to buy a rental property that provides a positive cash flow, lower taxable income. And not only does it provide lower taxable income, it offsets other passive losses that could have been in the past. Now, there's some special things you have to do on your tax return that are called rental grouping elections. But again, it, really, it's, it's diagnosed first. 
and then prescribe. And a lot of times we have clients coming to us with potential prescriptions uh, and we just have to weed through it. So think about depreciation, if you're listening, is a big hunk of Play-Doh and we can kind of mold it the way we want. We could just leave it as it is and, and take the 27 and a half year on residential property straight line depreciation, or we can maybe segregate out a chunk of it and immediately deduct it. Sometimes we want to do that. So that's why the whole, you know, with depreciation, it's a really powerful tool. Can you talk about accelerated depreciation, what that is and how it comes into play? Absolutely. So with the uh, tax growth and jobs acts of, of 2017, starting in tax years of, with 2018 and beyond, any assets, what we call 15 year assets or less are immediately deductible. So that would be carpeting. You know, again, it's always a facts and circumstances situation. Let's say you buy appliances for your rental property. Now, there are other things you can do, other special tax selections you can make to immediately deduct appliances, for instance, that are the de minimis safe harbor, the um, safe harbor for small taxpayers and the routine safe harbor election. I don't want to get all technical and, and that sort of stuff, but because I, but I don't want someone hearing this and saying, why would you depreciate an appliance? You could just make a tax election and deduct it right away. But let's assume you're, you're setting something up for depreciation. If it's a 15-year asset, then you can deduct that immediately if you want. But here's the cool thing. You could also elect out of it. I've got several clients that I'm, you know, it's kind of nice. It's like monopoly. You get that get out of jail free card. I don't have to decide my depreciation schedule till we file that tax return. So there's a lot of times when things, even though we're doing a lot of tax planning, we're looking, if, I, if I've got someone in, that's usually in a 25% marginal tax rate, this year they're in a 12% marginal tax rate. We might say, whoa, let's elect out of the five-year. It's by asset class. I can elect out of the five-year bonus depreciation and take the 15-year. So it's really... Really cool. So it basically sounds like what you're saying is that we as real estate investors have options available to us in terms of how we take those deductions. If we have a high income year or we're expecting to pay a lot of taxes this year on our current tax return, then it sounds like we can accelerate that depreciation and take those write-offs immediately like this year to lower our tax impact. But if we have a low income or a low tax year this year, but we're expecting to pay higher taxes going forward, like in the next two to five years, we can defer those write-offs and that depreciation and that bonus depreciation to years two, three, four, five to lower our tax impact in higher tax years. Correct. Correct. And then, so a lot of it comes down to understanding what someone's either acquisition or disposition strategy is with their portfolio. Because if I know, you know, yeah, it's, it's crazy because what we're trying to do is we're trying to match things up. We don't want a ton of capital gain in one year. And then the next year we have a huge capital loss that we can't use. So that, that's how we can. So we're really trying. And again, last time I checked, I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't predict what's going to happen. But yeah, exactly. It allows us some flexibility. And we also know that it's important for any investor to build their team out, which includes their lending partner. And for the, your CPA or tax advisor to work with the lending partner to understand What's going from that tax turn into their underwriting process, into their decision process as far as, and, and usually these depreciation deductions are added back when they're going to underwriting. But, but yeah, depreciation is really neat. So this just all comes, this is just tax planning. Tax planning. That's what you're talking about. You're strategically looking at what the situation is today, maybe what you've had, had taxed over the last or past five years, 
and then planning what you can do this year and what you should be doing in the next two to five years as far as adjusting your tax situation to minimize the impact each and every year. So this is really what you do with your tax advisor or your CPA, is you do tax planning to minimize how much tax you're going to pay year over year. Exactly. You have to consider your tax as an expense of owning the property. Now, normally, it's a very, very small expense, if any. It's, you, it's rare until typically until you get to a point where you're disposing of properties. And even if you dispose of properties, you have other options to defer your tax to keep cash. And a 1031 exchange, obviously, is not literally going in your pocket, but eventually it's going into your equity in the next property. Right. So that kind of segues to a thought here. You know, uh, Warren Buffett, one of the most famous and probably one of the best investors, you know, out there. He has a saying, you know, my favorite holding period is forever. Mm-hmm. You know, he's clearly a buy and hold, not a transactional investor. And, you know, if he had his way, he would hold everything forever and never sell. And for the most part, that's what he does. But the reason he, he does that, one of the reasons is that there's no tax on appreciation. The appreciation is there and you're never taxed on it until you actually realize it. So what can you say about that? What are your thoughts about appreciation and lack of taxation? How do we take advantage of that? Right. So I would say, you know, now that we're in the tax reform era and the estate tax exemption is so high. Now we're going to we're talking on a federal level. Every state's a little different. Mm-hmm. We have conforming and non-conforming states. But yeah, the, to be able to pretty neat that you can have capital appreciation that's tax free in your lifetime if you hold on to the property at a minimum, it's tax deferred until you recognize it. And the other thing is that's a great, powerful tool. And there's a potential Now, again, consult your tax advisor on the deductibility of this, but there's a potential to utilize that equity tax-free with refinancing, with HELOCs, with whatever your strategy is. That's why we say real estate, you know, the tax tax code loves real estate. I did want to point one more thing out that just came to me with depreciation, just because I want the listeners to really think about, we talked about step-up in basis, and a step-up in basis can occur between spouses, And I see that as a major miss on tax returns when we're reviewing prospective client tax returns. Husband and wife own an apartment complex, or a lot of times it's one spouse owns it, the other spouse inherits it. That's all, you can get a step up in basis for it. Sometimes for 100% of it, if it's jointly titled, sometimes at a minimum 50% of it. And in some states, if you have it titled properly within there's some special trust, um, you can get 100% step up in basis. So the spouse gets a reset. Can you explain how that works? I'm hearing what you're saying, but I'm not entirely following because if you're married, do mm-hmm. you not, I guess it might depend on the state, but do you not share in the tax reporting on that? And so you're really in the tax basis together? You file a joint return, but the mm-hmm. titling of the property is going to dictate the step up in basis. So if, if, it's, if my spouse and I own a rental property in Jackson, Mississippi, and I'm just saying because I'm kind of interested in that market, and I know you guys <laughs> work in there. So, uh, but let's say we owned a property in Jackson, Mississippi. Let's say you know I get hit by a beer truck, and now she's very wealthy and probably happier with a guy with flowing locks. But let's say, <laughs> let's say that I'm gone. Whatever that property, if, if we bought the property for 120,000, and now it's worth even 140, she gets a step up in basis for my half of it, and gets to start redepreciating it from my half. So if she ends up selling the property in the future, maybe, hey, I don't want to man, I don't want to have to work with these. She's going to reduce her capital gains and her cost basis in the property from my half resets to half of the value if it was owned jointly in that fact pattern. 
So interesting. I think that's the first time I've ever mm-hmm. heard that. It's really interesting. And there, so if you if you file partnership returns, or I don't want to get too tactical, but it's called a 754 election, and you're and we've seen it where spouses again that's a that's a big miss, and it usually gets caught. If a client comes to me and says, my spouse passed away three years ago, I'm trying to sell these properties, I don't know what to do, and I'm looking at the depreciation schedule. So in that fact pattern, you might want to, um, same with cost segregation studies, you might want to do a change of accounting method and on your tax return and, and make an adjustment so that your cost basis is increased before the sale happens. So it's I know we're getting a little technical now, but, but again, it comes down to planning, right? Or lack of planning for some taxpayers. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting because I, I don't think I've ever heard that before, and so I'm just mauling it in my head. I'm thinking, wow, that's that's actually pretty powerful. It is on it is. So, and one more thing on depreciation, I don't just just because I I, want, I don't want to be remiss. When the IRS calculates your capital gain, it's depreciation allowed, not taken. So sometimes I run into a taxpayer that says I didn't want to depreciate my property because I don't want to have to pay tax on it when I sell it, and that doesn't matter. If you buy a single family home, you at least have to deduct or cost recover the structure, the building over 27 and a half years. So Chris, is that optional? Can you opt out of that or do you have to depreciate it over 27 and a half? You don't have to, you could not take the deduction, but when the IRS calculates your capital gain, they are reducing it by the depreciation allowed. If you get really bored out there, check it out. It's, it's not depreciation taken, it's depreciation allowed. Now that doesn't mean you, they're going to say you should have done a cost segregation study, it's going to be based on a 27 and a half year on a single family home. So when would you do that though? I don't understand why you would not take the depreciation. Some people, a lot of times it's on self-prepared tax returns or tax returns prepared by people that don't know a lot about real estate, to be honest. It's, it's rare, but it, it could happen. Sometimes people say, well, I don't, I, I need to show more income for, to get a loan. It's like, well, the depreciation is going to get added back anyway, but that's okay, you know. That's true. Mm-hmm. So, for those people listening to this that maybe do their own tax returns or they're using, uh, you know, TurboTax mm-hmm. or whatever it may be, and they didn't, whether you know they forgot or it was on purpose, they didn't actually take the depreciation for the last five years, mm-hmm. and now they're listening to this. What should they do? First of all, can they go back those five years and take that depreciation, and how would that play out? Mm-hmm. And should they actually implement that depreciation starting now? Well, first, yes, they should implement it immediately. The second thing is you can only go back and amend your tax returns for three years and have any type of benefit. So what they would want to do is do what's called a change of accounting method and potentially take the all that depreciation deduction in the next year's tax return. So they're going to want to talk to someone about that. There's something called a 481A adjustment. So that same situation when you do... I have a client that in 2015, they bought a commercial building and now they have their red diagnosis and they're not looking for us. So they have, we need some tax deductions and they're not buying any other properties and they have a lot of, and let's, or no, better fact pattern would be they own two properties. They're going to sell one and I'm looking for deductions in the other one. You could actually go back to the cost side study, pretend you did it in 15 and any deductions you should have taken now all come into play as it, then you do have to do what's called a change of accounting method on your tax return. So that's what you would do. And if they can't use up all that depreciation this year to minimize their taxes, can they carry forward any unused portion of that depreciation from the last three years? Well, it would. So if they did a change of accounting method and then they have a big depreciation deduction in 2020 that they can't use, then what would happen is it would just become part of their passive loss carry forward. So they would essentially get it. 
Got it. Yeah. Cool. So you mentioned two things actually in the last 10 minutes that I, I've been trying to remember in the back of my mind here. One is that the equity, uh, you know, I had mentioned that appreciation essentially is not taxed. It's there. It grows. You know, I mentioned Warren Buffett and he likes to hold things forever. Uh, but you could borrow against that appreciation. You could borrow against the equity as a whole. Mm-hmm. And it's a tax-free event. You can borrow the money, use it and put it to work. And you can do that through a cash out refinance and you can do that through a line of credit or a HELOC, a home equity line of credit. So that, that's a beautiful thing. You mentioned it. I just want you to kind of talk a little bit more about it from a tax perspective. I know people love to be able to do this because it allows you to rapidly or accelerate you know, the, the speed that, w- that which you build your portfolio with and gain more equity over time and it accelerates the wealth creation. But any comments about it from a tax perspective? One thing you want to consider is we would call that a portfolio reallocation. There are some rules as far as the deductibility of the uh, your mortgage interest if you've pulled out of the property more than what your cost basis is. So that's just something to consider. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. If you're in a partnership tax situation, then it gets really complicated because each partner has their own basis. But let's say you're the only owner of a property, that's a good way to pull equity. Another thing that we're seeing, and one of, uh, one of my tax tips is uh, using the 10T election, which means we see a lot of the clients on the coasts, okay? They have a ton of um, equity, equity. In, their, in their property, <laughs> right? And what they're doing is they're using uh, first position or it doesn't have to be first position, but home equity lines of credit to buy property in the Sun Belt and in the, in, in yep. the Midwest. And then they, they're kind of doing the Burr method, but, but financing it through their home equity line or they're buying it rent ready. I know you had an episode about between turn, you know, the term turnkey is kind of a newer thing. So let's say they buy what we call turnkey or rent ready property. And then they use those rents to either pay back their HELOC or they refinance out and kind of do it over and over again. In that case, we're talking about pulling equity out of a property. So it doesn't always have to be a rental property, investment property. It could be their primary residence. And in that case, you can make what's called a 10T election and actually deduct that mortgage interest, even though it's tied to your personal residence, against your rental property income. And now the tax reform with the standard deduction being almost $25,000 for most married taxpayers, depending on age, that's attractive because a lot of us aren't really deducting our mortgage interest. When I say us, I mean America, right? A lot of taxpayers, right. a lot of people with mortgages. So it comes down to the diagnosis and strategy if someone says, this is what typically happens. I'm looking to buy a property. You know, I need X amount of down payment. And what should I do? Well, probably the worst thing you could do is pull it out of your IRA, right? Because now you're getting taxed plus potential 10% penalty. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It's just typically a bad look, right? Or just depend, you know, you, we have to figure out what you're trying to accomplish. If it's something, if it's someone that's saying, I'm get, I want to get into hard money lending, yeah, I've seen horror stories where people go pull money out of an IRA, lose 40% of it to tax, then turn around and do lending with it, where they could have just done the lending in the self-directed IRA or something more creative. So, uh, Let's drill down on that 10T for a minute here, because mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this that fall into that situation where they're thinking, yeah, I've got, I jokingly refer to them as equity rich, cash flow poor. Mm-hmm. And so uh, these are a lot of the people in the coastal states and the expensive markets like Denver and wherever else. So if you're borrowing against your principal residence and mm-hmm. it's, let's say, a home equity line of credit or whatever it may be, but you're paying interest on it, mm-hmm. with the 10T election, you are now able to shift that interest deduction 
well, that interest charge mm -hmm. on the borrowed monies from your equity to your rental properties, right? Mm -hmm. That's what it's for. Now, if you make that election, does that apply to your principal mortgage as well, your first mortgage, or just that second mortgage where you're pulling equity out? It can be a it can be a first mortgage. It depend if that money was used to buy property. So let's oh, say you get a cash out refinance. Let's say you owe a hundred grand. You're in California. You pull out four hundred. Then three quarters of your new mortgage could be allocated to what we would call Schedule E. Sometimes Schedule C. Some to Schedule A as an itemized deduction. But that interest is already deductible on your principal residence if you're getting a, a HELOC. So why would you want to take the 10T election? Right. Well, it's deductible if you itemize your deductions. And, then, and there are some states that don't allow itemized deductions, but the standard deduction being you know, $25,000 right. pretty much, a lot yeah. of times you're not going to be able to deduct it, especially if you're in a no-tax state like a Texas or um, Washington. You know, you're not paying any state and local income Got tax it. or very little. So and it's, to me, it's better to move that in general from Schedule A as an, a personal deduction to Schedule E as a what we'd call a business deduction against rental properties. Got it. OK, oh. so people are listening to this and if they didn't know about it, they're actually missing out on a potential deduction towards their taxes that has been there for a long time and you're not taking advantage of it. Right, because, Margo, think about some of the some of the, um, the like the child tax credit. Um, the college tuition credit. There are a lot of credits that are based on your adjusted gross income. And we know that Schedule A is an, an itemized deduction after adjusted gross income. Schedule E is before adjusted gross income. And most states tax you on that adjusted gross income figure. If we can move something again from Schedule A as a personal deduction to a business deduction in general, that's going to make sense. doesn't always make sense, but it's a tool we have. Interesting. Okay, well, we've really only covered three or four bullets of the ten. <laughs> <laughs> we've I know further. I can not go in depth if you want to hit me with a few fast ones. I don't care. Uh, I'll be short-winded. <laughs> no, you're fine. You know what? Let's just hit one more, and uh, we'll record another episode. So, um, anything on the off the top of your head that you think would be pertinent for uh, the subject of you know the tax code and why it's so favorable for real estate investors? Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, we've harped, harped on that planning is very, very important. Yeah. Um, the use of your depreciation deduction is important. I would say it's also important for you to look beyond the numbers of your tax return and tax planning into your tax elections. So these are things that are going to be attached to your tax returns, or maybe they weren't attached to your tax return, that don't affect the numbers but making sure that you are aware of what we call the de minimis safe harbor election, which means that any, in general, any improvement under $2,500 is immediately deductible, even if it's a new set of appliances. Why is that important? Well, when you go and sell that property, if you do sell a property, you have to pay tax on your depreciation recapture. And if you capitalize it, then you're either paying tax on that at a higher rate than capital gains, or you're forcing to put more money into another you know, tax to 1031 or qualified opportunity zone fund. So making that safe harbor election is important. I would say the other elections, the, um, well, that's the de minimis safe harbor election. The other elections are the safe harbor election for small taxpayers, which basically in general means the lesser of 2% of the basis of the property or $10,000 is immediately deductible. And then there's a routine maintenance safe harbor that means that says, hey, if it's routine maintenance, as long as I'm not 
better, creating a betterment of the property, I could still deduct it. Now, every each of those could be its own episode. I just want to make the listeners aware of those things. Now, one more, one more election that's very important. For those of you that are with tax reform, the Section 199A, Section 199A was born, which is the qualified business income deduction. That deduction provides you with a up to a 20% deduction based on your business income. And for a lot of our clients, remember that example without the mortgage where we said, hey, you have $8,000 of cash flow, you have only $4,000 of taxable tax flow. Well, in that case, it'd be nice to take an additional 20% federal deduction off of that $4,000. So there's a safe harbor election for rental real estate investors called a rental real estate enterprise election. And in general, it's as long as you have 250 hours into your real estate activities, then you're going to be able to qualify for that 20% deduction. And that 250 hours includes all of your subcontractors. So your property managers, your repairs and maintenance folks, all of those activities count for the 250 hour rule. One more election, I promise. This, the, the, um, you're going to also want to do a uh, rental grouping election because all these tests you hear about with how five, you hear about the 500 hour test, 750 hour test. I just mentioned this wacky 250 hour test. What we want to do is those tests in general are based on each property. So you want to make an election that says all of my rental properties, I might have five of them, are really just one big enterprise. So it's called a rental grouping election. So if I have to leave everyone with a few quick hit tidbits, definitely look at your tax return, make sure those elections were made. The elections don't make sense for everyone, but I would say about an 80 to 85% rate, we're going to make those elections for our clients. Two questions real quick. The 250 hour rule, that particular election, can you use these elections in conjunction with each other? And you mentioned one before that. I don't remember what you called it. I was going to ask you if they both apply together. Yeah, so they you can use multiple elections. Mm-hmm. Yes, because so how many? Two, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, the two hundred fifty the, the the rental enterprise election only really plays a role if you have net taxable income from your real estate activities. If you don't, then you're not going to get the twenty percent deduction. So, how many of these elections would you say there are that are applicable to real estate investors? Us. I would say, uh, ooh, that's fun. That's a good question. If I ever, I'm gonna let me think. I'd if say to ballpark it. What would you five, say? Five, five of them. Uh, actually, not including depreciation. Five. You know, it almost sounds like just the elections are one whole episode by itself. Yeah, yeah. These are much more fun elections to talk about than our regular elections. So because it could save you money. <laughs> but um, but yes. I'm happy to, um, again, uh, you know, I'll send you, I have a couple, you know, two, three minute videos on each election that, that really dives in and allows people to figure out okay. if it makes sense for them. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Well, we are running at about a 40 minute mark here. So why don't we uh, start to wind it down or wrap it up? I know we're going to be doing another episode as well. So um, we can pick up somewhere in that new episode. So Chris, hey, thanks for coming on the show. Tell our listeners where they can find you and where they can get more information about what you guys do. Right. Well, um, you can find us if you're a listener of the show. We're happy to talk to you, give you an initial consultation, guide you in the right direction. Our website is realestatecpa.guru, or I have a professional Facebook page. If you just go to facebook.com backslash your real estate CPA, and uh, you don't have to put your information in. It's just, well, on the, on the, the, the first one, if you want to have an inquiry and a talk, we obviously have to know where you're at to, to call to set that up. But 
Uh, no, I, you know, I'm happy to help out people. I really feel like the theory of what good is your knowledge if you don't share it. So I love it. Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you for taking the time today. This has been informative. I know taxes is a confusing area for a lot of people. And this is why I stress the importance of having a good CPA or tax advisor to help guide you through it, because there's all these ways to save on taxes. And it's almost impossible for any one individual to know what they all are and how they apply and when to take advantage of them. So, you know, we need guys like you. Well, if you're into real estate, I've, and, and we're always learning, I think I could probably help you out. And uh, if you're an Idaho potato farmer, I'm probably going to find you someone in Idaho to help you. So it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, tax has really gone the route of medicine in so far that we're, in so fact that we really are having to specialize in certain industries. So yeah, very and I much love so. this one. Yeah, no, it's great. I find the, the subject very interesting because every time I learn something new, I'm thinking, oh, there's another way to save on taxes. And that's, you know, that's great. It means more money in our pocket, right? Yes. All right. Well, Chris, thank you for your time. For everybody listening today, Chris is a wealth of knowledge. Uh, take advantage of his free resources. Check out his website and learn a little more about what they have to offer. You know, anytime you can save on taxes, it just means more money in your pocket. With that, if you're relatively new to real estate investing or you just want to get a refresher and a primer, download my free report, The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing. It is a great frame of reference for you. If you're thinking about real estate investing or you are looking to build your portfolio, contact my investment counselors for a free strategy session and they will help you build a roadmap to build that portfolio. And then of course, you will bring in your tax advisor to help you save on taxes. That's it for today. I appreciate you listening. We will see you all on our next episode. Are you looking for a roadmap to financial freedom? If so, we have a solution for you. Narada Real Estate is offering a limited number of free strategy sessions to help you get out of the rat race. Learn how you can create wealth and build monthly passive income. To set up a time with one of our knowledgeable investment counselors, simply go to naradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.